This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so encouraging to see so many people here and to hear that full chanting of a full window. It's really, I see smiling faces. Those of us who have been struggling along for two years with small numbers in the Zendo. It's just, thank you all for being here. <clears throat> so, um, as has been said already, this is a birthday party, kind of a weird one. Everything we do is a little weird. Um, <clears throat> so today we are celebrating Buddha's birthday. And um, today's the 9th of April, and we are actually like one day off from what's become the traditional date. It's, it's the eighth day of the fourth month of the lunar calendar, which we don't follow in the West. Um, but since the uh, 19th century in Japan, when the Western calendar, our calendar uh, here in this part of the world was, was adopted, the date has been fixed as the eighth day of April. So this celebration um, coincides with spring. Finally, <laughs> we have spring. And uh, in some parts of Japan, at least, the, the flowering of the cherry trees, right? The very celebrated flowering of the cherry trees. Um, and in Japan, it's called Hana Matsuri, uh, or flower, Hana is flower, flower festival. And it's a really big, you know, wonderful celebration, which includes Buddha's birthday, but it's also a spring celebration. And our lineage of Buddhism, for all of you new people, uh, Soto Zen, comes to us from Japan most directly. And so we follow its traditions. So we're kind of celebrating Hanamatsuri, Buddha's birthday. This has been going on in Japan since the seventh century of our common era, when this custom of celebrating uh, <clears throat> was imported from China, um, where Buddhism originally came from to Japan. Um, and in other East Asian uh, countries, Buddha's birthday his enlightenment and his passing from this world are all celebrated in a single holiday. But in our stream of Buddhism, we commemorate them on different days. So we have three uh, celebrations. And we commemorate them in different ways. And as uh, we've already announced after this talk and a, a little bit of a reconfiguration of ourselves, we'll have a ceremony that is going to be a version of the ceremony observed in Japan. And I'll have a little bit more to say about this a little bit later, what we're, what we're going to do <laughs> ceremonially to mark this day. But I wanted to start by uh, asking this question, which may seem like a kind of silly question, but sometimes those questions are worth asking. Why are we celebrating Buddha's birthday at all? Maybe it kind of seems natural to celebrate birthdays because we do that um, here in the West, uh, although and not in all cultures of the West. Birthdays are not important in some uh, places I've lived, like uh, Greece, people's name days, their saints' name days are what are important. Their birthdays are not important. But we celebrate the birthdays of uh, our family members and our friends, but also of admirable, I think, admirable figures in our culture, political leaders or founders of our uh, current political and national arrangements, saints. Uh, if we're uh, believers, and so on. 
And we like to think of these people as heroes, great people, uh, someone who lived and often who died in a way that we think is special. <clears throat> and um, we feel inspired and grateful. So we remember them annually. And these people, you know, did some kind of great thing for the benefit of others, for their communities, or for the world. Sometimes they save the world, we'd say. And it seems like a birthday is about one person. Um, at least that's how we usually think of it, like when it's my birthday. Right? <laughs> and in the West, we usually know when our birthdays are. And we sometimes are amazed when we find out that there's someone else in our circle who has the same birthday as we do. Like my sister and her best friend from years and years ago, they have the very same birthday. They share the same birthday, which is kind of an amazing karmic coincidence of some kind. But of course, many people all over the world, everywhere, share our birthdays, whether we know these people or not. So the point I want to make is one person is special, but we share so much whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we actualize it or not. So we have national holidays that celebrate people we consider in some way to be ancestors, models, or heroes. And of course, we're revising a lot of our thinking about some of these people these days, but that's the motivation. These people who are significant to our group, our nation, our tribe, or the story of us, however we define us. For us, for we practitioners of Zen, Buddha, the person we call the Buddha, is a historical person whose given name was Siddhartha and whose family name was Gautama. And he's one person and we are celebrating his birthday because of his life and his teaching, right? That seems pretty simple. He's our ancestor. He's our teacher. He's our hero. And we usually call him Buddha, the awakened one. That's what that means. The one who woke up. Or you may also hear him referred to as Shakyamuni, the sage of the Shakyas, the clan, the Shakya clan, into which he was born. Buddha then is a kind of title. <clears throat> His personal name, Siddhartha, means, I like to translate it this way anyway, mission accomplished. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> mission accomplished. That's a good way of putting it in English, I think. Someone who did what he set out to do. He had a mission, he accomplished it. But this accomplishment may be kind of hard to understand. However, it's an important piece of why we celebrate him the way we do. And although he is kind of a hero to us, parts of what he did or parts of his uh, hero's journey actually don't sound very heroic. <clears throat> he had a very fortunate childhood. He was actually the son of a king. But he left home. He left his family, his parents, and his wife and child. This usually sticks in the craw of most women, I know. And he went on a journey. Now, a journey is what all heroes do. It's the heroic pattern. To leave home, go on a journey, be tested, and triumph in the end. So he did that. He went on a journey, and he faced challenges that heroes have to overcome during their journeys. And what he overcame was rebirth and death. 
all of us take a trip. It's the journey of our lives. And if we are following the path of practice, the Buddha's path, we are seeking to discover who we are, who we really are, and to become fully mature, fully human. And so we call this particular hero and his journey, who went on his journey, the Buddha. The Buddha, the one who woke up. Siddhartha became the Buddha, the one who woke up to the reality of life, of all things. So the awakened one, another way we could translate Buddha, the awakened one. When we celebrated Buddha's birthday in my original temple in North Carolina, we aimed the whole thing at the kids in the Sangha. We had a pretty healthy kids program, a lot of children. And um, we gave a talk. Someone had to give a talk to the kids, no more than like five minutes or so. 10 minutes was too long for the kids. And you know, the kids were focused on a party, there was a parade, the cake, right? <clears throat> so they were pretty squirmy. And one year I gave the talk pitch to these kids and I wondered if they were thinking, big deal. What is so special about being awake? You know, I mean, one kid said, I wake up every morning, <laughs> whether I want to or not. So I asked them, that was a question that actually came to me, big deal, you know. And I said, so, are you awake? You're not taking a nap, are you? Some of them were actually on the floor taking naps. <laughs> Your eyes are open, you can hear my voice, and you can feel how you are sitting and what the temperature in the room is like. And you're aware, maybe, that you're hungry, or thirsty, or a little restless, because it's such a nice day outside and you have to sit here and listen to me. And you might notice how you are feeling inside. Right? Are you excited for cake? And then they started coming. <laughs> but really, this is a question we can all hold, right? What is Buddha's waking up? So I think a pointer, um, that's appropriate for today comes through the ceremony that we will do. This is the ceremony that is at the center of Hanamatsuri. So they're doing this in Japan too, um, the flower festival. And this part of this festival is called Kanbutsu-e, bathing Buddha. Butsu is how you say Buddha in Japanese. And we have a shelter outside in the side yard where we'll do the ceremony. Um, a shelter, or we call it sometimes a pagoda, and it's decorated with flowers, and it's waiting for us out there. And inside is a figure representing the newborn Buddha, right? the newborn child, the newborn hero. And this is called in Japanese Tanjo Butsu Zo, literally the birth Buddha statue. But he's not a newborn baby at all. Right? It's a kind of weird baby. He's standing up, as you will see, right? He's standing up on his two feet, and he looks more like a little boy than a baby. And he's pointing in opposite directions, right? He's pointing up and pointing down, um, one to the sky and one to the ground. And we're going to hear the story of Buddha's birth um, as part of the ceremony. It will be, it'll be read, so I don't want to give it all away, but the story that goes with this pointing and standing is that upon being born, he took seven steps in each direction, which, you know, I mean, I've never seen a newborn baby do that, right? 
they can't do that in our usual experience. And he spoke, <laughs> which newborns also generally can't do. So like other heroes, this is part of a miraculous birth. This is also part of the pattern of heroic birth and journeying and triumph. Um, and we'll hear more about this again in the ceremony. And then he said these words, I alone am the world honored one. This strikes a lot of us as like, what? <laughs> this is like bragging, you know? <laughs> this is like against the precept, our ethical precept about not praising self. And here's Buddha, the first you know, act is this. But what this story and the statue are saying is really what the Buddha woke up to when he woke up. So I want to look a, a little bit at these words and try to understand why he would say this. And despite how it strikes us, you know, I alone am the world honored one. Right? I alone, I think, can be understood as not just this one person and only this one person apart and isolated. So that's how it strikes us. Um, another way of translating what he said is, I only in the world am honored, or holy is another uh, translation. Or I alone am the Lord, or the chief, right? Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha seems to be saying he is the boss at birth, right? But is he really saying that he's like, you know, up here in this hierarchy by himself? Um, and this is a little bit of a deep dive into Japanese, but I'll try to make it simple. Um, the word for I that is used in this account of his birth is actually one of several that can be used in Japanese, all of which have slightly different meanings. And here the word is ga, which is sometimes translated into English as ego, right? Like our sense of ego, which just means I, or even Atman, which some of you may know in Indian thought is the world word for self. And then the ramifications of that word, which I don't want to get into right now anyway. Um, but there's another word for self, jiko, that means something like universal self or even life force that is shared by every living thing. So the word that is used in this particular account, ga, and not universal self, jiko, that's a choice, right? This word in this statement in our Japanese sources is a particular choice. There is a particular I. I am me, you are you, that seems pretty clear. But it's the same word that Buddha uses upon his enlightenment as well, later in his life, when he finally realizes what he's been searching for. He also says at that time, I and the great earth and beings simultaneously achieve the way. This is the same word, God, right? not Chico. So I wanted to, in the rest of this talk, talk about beginning of his life, when he makes, takes these steps and points and makes a statement, and his enlightenment as a kind of linked circle. What to make of this choice of words and this statement that the newborn Shakyamuni makes. He takes a walk, seven steps in each direction, encompassing the whole world. And he points up at the sky and down, including the earth. I don't think this is like an expression of domination. I got, I got this. The whole thing. It's mine. Right? I don't think so. 
Rather, I think he was acknowledging an identity with an I that is bigger than this one individual person. And he announces this at birth. This I is not the individual I as we usually think of it. And um, I found that our friend, Kokio Henkel, who many of you know uh, from his visits here and his recent visit this past year, um, Kokio said, in discussing this, um, that Keizan Jokin, the co-founder of our Soto Zen in Japan, um, actually commented on this story about and, and on this I. This is what Keizan said. He said, this so-called I, I alone in the world honor one, right? Or I and the whole world, all beings simultaneously wake up. He said, this so-called I is not Shakyamuni Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha also comes from this I. Not only does Shakyamuni come from it, but the great earthen beings, which he acknowledges in his enlightenment, also come from it. If you want an intimate understanding of enlightenment, you should get rid of you and Gotama at once and quickly understand this matter of I. So what our Zen ancestor Keizan is urging us to do is to break down this notion of a separate self, an individual unconnected and like strongly bounded. We think I stop here. Shakyamuni may have said I, Ga, but he was not referring to what we call himself, a single person, myself, a single person. Kazan goes on, he says, quote, this has nothing to do, this I, has nothing to do with skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, nor has it anything to do with the four elements or the five aggregates, the five skandhas. Now this phrase, skin, flesh, bones, and marrow, shows up in a lot of Zen references. And these four parts are sometimes taken for just the individual aspects of our bodily selves, from outermost skin to innermost, right? Marrow in our bones. But this can also be a mistaken view. And Kazan is saying, there is no inner and outer. Right? This I has nothing to do with these four things. And the four elements that Kazan mentions, earth, earth, fire, water, and air, which in Indian and also Western thought are the <clears throat> elements that can constitute um, the whole universe and the qualities of everything in the universe. It's a huge topic, uh, like Atman. You can try to catch me later, and I'll fail to answer your questions. But anyway, that's what he's referring to. And the five aggregates are basic Buddhist teachings about the parts of our, what we think of as our human selves, form, sensations, perceptions, and mental activity or formations, and then the consciousness of those four things. So to say that the I referenced by Shakyamuni Buddha has nothing to do with any of these kinds of elements is a complete forgetting of the self as we usually understand it. Dogen talks about this. Dogen is the founder of Soto Zen in the 13th century of our era. 
Dogen talks about this forgetting of the self in his essay called Genjo Koan, or in English, something like actualizing the fundamental point. Dogen says, quote, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas, and those who greatly, who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings, ordinary beings. So to paraphrase, to think that there is an I and it goes out and experiences other things, the way we usually do, right? We reach out, we grasp, we, we go after things. That's delusion. It is myriad things that realize themselves and us simultaneously if we are able to see through delusion. And there's another quote from the same essay by Dogen that's very famous. Um, I run into it all the time in Google searches, whether I'm looking for this or not. Um, and this is that, this is the quote from Dogen, study the Buddha way is to study the self. So that's our practice. We're studying the self. <clears throat> to study the self is to forget the self. Forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. And when actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. And then he says about the search, Shakyamuni's search, our search. He says, when you first seek Dharma, you imagine you are far away from its environs. But Dharma is already correctly transmitted. You are immediately your original self. So this is the I out of which Buddha comes, in my opinion. And it is the no trace of realization. It is your body and mine and those of others dropping away, losing the small self, forgetting the small self. And, realize, and being realized by all things. So Kazan and Dogen, not surprisingly, since they were close in time and carrying forward Soto Zen in Japan, says, I and together with, says Kazan, are not one thing. I together with all beings. Nor are they two things. This is typical Zen speak, by the way, to say something and then say, and it's not that either. Kazan says, truly, the skin, flesh, bones, and marrow of you all are entirely together with. He says, you must simultaneously brush away Gautama and you people. There's no separation between Buddha and you. And quickly understand what I represents. He says, the together with of I is the great earth and sentient beings. But the I of together with is not that old guy, Gautama. <laughs> he finishes by saying, this being so, you should not form an understanding of the great earth and sentient beings. This is kind of confusing. What I would say he's trying to tell us is, get rid of and, Buddha and you. Something and something else. That and separates us. Buddha, Buddha and, Buddha and, you and. Right? 
near the end. That's the seam. That's the separation. I found a passage from Robert Aiken Roshi, um, who's a wonderful teacher and now passed, um, that are, that's direct and kind of appropriate for spring, that where he addresses points like this and quotes the Genjo Koan. He quotes the same thing I just read, and I read this after I found the realized that that was what I wanted to say or use from Dogen. So I should have looked at Robert Aiken first, but anyway, it helps me to think that maybe he and I have some agreement. This is from his great book called The Mind of Clover, which is basically about the precepts. Um, and it's from the chapter called The Mind of Clover. So let me read this and maybe it will help us understand Kazan's somewhat arcane um, commentary. Aiken says, how do we actualize the oneness of all beings? He says, through the ability to respond. Like clover. When clover is cut, its roots die and release their nitrogen, and the soil is enriched. Earthworms flourish in the rich soil and deposit more nutrients. New seeds fall, take root, mature and feed other organisms. <clears throat> Clover does not think about responsibility, and neither did Shakyamuni. He simply arose from his seat and went looking for his friends, the people that he practiced with originally, and left in order to go his own way and resolve things for himself. Aiken says, the clover simply puts down its roots and puts up its leaves and flowers. Aiken says, fundamentally, the no thought, like the dropping of body and mind, the no thought of the clover and the no thought of Shakyamuni are the same. They come forth and their response to circumstances is to give nourishment. No thought comes forth here as clover, there as Shakyamuni. Single universal nature appears like this in the world. We identify clover here and Shakyamuni there and acknowledge that the two are very different indeed. There is an I and there is not. The clover produces pollen without a thought. Shakyamuni twirls a flower before his assembly without a thought. But clover cannot call a meeting. Shakyamuni cannot metabolize nutrients directly from the soil. And he goes on about the difference then between Shakyamuni and Clover. Those are examples of myriad things. I really like that passage and I encourage you to read this book. So, I and together with are not one thing, nor are they two different things, says Kazan. To conclude, Buddha is not apart from sentient beings. The one being he is, however, awakens with and awakens all beings. He has his function. We have our function, but there's no and. Buddha woke up, realized that the whole world is me, and he was the whole world. There wasn't or isn't any me without the world, and there isn't any world without me. This is what is called being really awake. And we too can be that kind of awake and alive when we really know we are alive and aware and that everything around us, all people, all life, all things in all times and places 
this is Buddha being born. Because you are fully awake and you know that you exist because everything exists. Your friends, your family, your sangha, the people you think are in opposition to you, the flowers, the cake, they all depend on each other and on you. In some way, they cannot really be touched with words. It's all you. Buddha is now, not in some faraway place thousands of years ago. The whole universe, we say, is the Buddha body. And this, uh, all this, from the birth of Shakyamuni over 2,500 years ago, and we are told in the story, this is because the time had come for the stream of good karma to ripen and for the Buddha to come into the world, to manifest in the world. But really, this child, this strange child who could walk and point and talk, his mission was accomplished already. Mission accomplished boy. It was already accomplished. But if we look at the story of his great realization under the Bodhi tree many years later, he still had to take his life's journey, right? He didn't just grow up into a giant person pointing and saying things like, I alone in the world honored one. He had to renounce the palace. And like all of us, after much searching and coming close to death, in his case, from his ascetic practices, he sat down and he touched the earth that he had pointed to at the start of his life, under a tree, rooted in that earth. And he pointed up, and he was under the stars that he had also pointed to. And he saw the morning star while he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and he awakened with it. Again, the sky above and the earth below and one star arising in its time while other stars set and the day began and everything doing its thing, all dependent on each other. And upon his awakening, he made this statement, right? say it again, I together with all beings in the great earth attain the way, together with, he realized the truth, which was his birthright and is ours, always present, always available. But we have to make the effort to realize the way things truly are and to be free. So about the ceremony, near the start this afternoon, we will hear the story of the birth of Shakyamuni Buddha in some detail and many miraculous details. Right? In some ways, the pointing and the walking are the least of it. Um, and. Um, he was born in a garden, so that's why we have a flower pavilion. And when he was born, he was bathed with perfumed water by the Naga kings, who are snake divinities, and flowers rained down. So we are recreating this. We are, through ceremony, actualizing his birth. And he got a silk garment made of gold and silver thread, so he's going to be clothed. Um, and when he took his steps and made his gestures and his statement, he was, that's that's the setting. So we will welcome this image of him that shows him as a boy in his divine gift of a garment and that uh, the, and in his pagoda, the frame of the whole world, heaven and earth, the complete universe that he realized and is. And we will give him a nice warm bath of sweet tea. Uh, and in this way, we will enact the story ourselves. So we really are midwives to the Buddha, while we're also the Buddha being born. Um, and the birth already accomplished uh, includes accomplishing the way, even though he went 
through this process. And we'll chant to the sound of the drum and we will toss flower petals and herbs and each of us will offer incense and pour a ladle of sweet tea on the Buddha and we'll wake ourselves up. And incense. No incense. I'm oh, sorry, no incense. Just, just sweet tea, that's enough. <laughs> Some places they do the incense. Um, and we do this to honor the appearance in this world and of, and of this eon, the great teacher of the way that brings freedom from suffering and benefits and awakens all beings. So happy birthday to you and to us, and happy birthday to everything. And it is almost 11. So. Should we do the thing to the actors? Yeah. Ask a question. Okay, so we there is some time for questions, I think, if people want to ask them. And I can answer them, I'll try. better. Any questions, comments? Hey, hi. Rich, um, Rich Graff is out in the foyer. Hi. Hi. Sorry, I can't see you or you can't see me, but um, we can hear you. <laughs> uh, good. Um, I was just, I was struck by the, the image of clover. I like, because I like flowers. And I know that in Ikebana, Clover means represents hard work. So what came to mind was the heart, the clover and Buddha are. It means like we our hard work of practice makes us equivalent to the Buddha. Is that like our practice, like Dogen said about you know practice is realization. Yeah. So it's like our the hard work of our practice is making is making us bringing out our Buddha nature. Is that? I think you could read it that way. That you, I don't know if you can all hear what Rich said, but yeah, clover in Ikebana, which he practices, is a, it represents hard work. But I think everything has its function. But for us humans, it's hard to see what is our function. I think this is like our real conundrum. And clover just does its thing, right? You put it in the ground. It's like you know, things. It seems simple. Plants are sort of simple. In that, I mean, it's made. They're amazing and complex, but. Under the right conditions, the seed sprouts, and all this th these things happen that are so amazing. And you know, it just keeps doing that. And he goes on to say, you know, plants also adapt and change and bring forth new plants. I mean, life is like this, right? It adapts, it changes, it doesn't remain fixed in its form. But clover has no thought of being clover and like, what do I do now? Is it time to, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, it's enough sun, enough water, and up it comes and flowers. And when it's when it's cut, it continues its particular function, which is to fertilize the earth, release its nitrogen. Clover is really you know, a wonderful plant in that way. So the comparison to Shakyamuni is he had no thought either. He just functioned. He went and functioned. His function was to try to help other people. He actually sat there for a while and enjoyed his realization, his lack of separation, his understanding of the way things actually are. And then he thought, he thought, I can't teach this, right? There's no way I can teach this to other people. But then he remembered his friends who were still struggling. And he thought, I got to try. And that's what he did for the rest of his life. 
the story that Kazan tells is he didn't spend a single day alone for the rest of his life. He always had people around him and he was always teaching out of this desire to benefit. But that desire is not a thought. It's just his function. So the question is, what is our function? Right? Everything has its work. We can work hard like Clover. You know, we can work hard like Shakyamuni, but it's it's without a, you know a thought. It's just my responsibility as a human being. What is it? What is my unique function as a, as a human being right now? Yes. Thank you, um, Rich. I am interested in the choice of the I when you say that there are three eyes and they chose Ga rather than uh, Jiko. Um, and so I wonder, you know, I wonder about that specific choice and whether there's like a turning in it, like something to, to teach us in choosing that eye and like the, the learning of the and. So I wonder if you could say some words of your impression. So this is one of those, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing kind of moments, because I know a little bit of Japanese, right? mm. a little bit, and I rely a lot on other people who know Japanese, who are either native Japanese speakers trying to get this across to us in English, or people like Kokyo who know more than I do and can discern these differences and, and try to understand them through you know, modern English, and sometimes you have to go from medieval Japanese to modern Japanese English, Western American 21st century English, and, it, and it's sometimes it seems hopeless <laughs> like to get this across. But my Jiko is a particular term that is especially prominent in a school, a Soto Zen school that's very close to ours, Uchiyama Roshi, Kodosawaki Roshi, this universal self, which they like to render into English as life force, something like life force. And that, and there's a lot of G compounds in both modern Japanese and older Japanese. G plus something. So G ko, G this, G that. And I don't pretend that I know all of the nuances of these different G compounds. Um, but and, and you know, the Jap and the little bit of Japanese that I've learned, you know, the, the we that we often, or the I that I use is watashi, has nothing to do with ga or jiko or anything else. Mm -hmm. So that's what mm -hmm. I mean by it seems like very tangled sometimes. But I, but not only I, but but Keizan and also our friend um, Kokyo point to this I as being a particular I. So not they're not pointing to, it would be kind of easy if they said, oh yeah, it's life force, happy birthday life force, and we'd all go, right, and we'd go out and eat cake. And, mm -hmm. and but it's it's this individual eye that is also not just an individual. Mm -hmm. I can point you to the text if you want to try to struggle with it yourself. But Kazan even spends a lot of time, his contemporaries, trying to explain this. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's simple. Right? And I think that's the choice. It's not just yeah, we're, everything is interconnected, and you know, right? We can kind of all get that. We can all see how things are connected, and part everything is part. Everything has an effect on everything else, right? This interconnection, interbeing, whatever you want to call it, but it's a little more subtle than that. Yeah. Yes. The structure of koans uh, seems to reflect um, or highlight fundamental uncertainty. 
and uh, giving prescriptions to life. What'd you say? Say this last sentence again. Giving prescriptions to life. We're trying to provide others with advice. Um, you can proclaim it's this way and then simultaneously disclaim it's this way too. Yeah, it is this or may not be this. Whatsoever. Yeah, I think koans are trying to knock us out of our certainties. Right? That's part of what koans do. I have not studied koans as, in a systematic way with a teacher, so you know, I, I'm relying on a little bit secondhand. But also, you know, they're, they, they're a dialogue. They come up in a meeting. It's pretty spontaneous. Somebody comes in with an agenda <laughs> challenging the teacher, and the teacher responds in a way that's sometimes very unexpected or mysterious. And it seems like that to us. And they're sometimes said to be like almost like a riddle. But I think the main thing is that I concentrate on that's helpful is to think of it as an encounter and, you, you know, that that's part of our practice is relationship. Relationship with each other, relationship with the teacher is like a focus, right? Where they keep kind of trying to point you, point to something in your responses to you. That can come without koans at all, just meeting. But everything is like that. So it's another demonstration, I think, of separate but not separate. You know, the coming together, you become one person, the encounter, one thing. So opening to that, being willing to be, you know, knocked off your feet. Is instead of defensive. So not so much advice giving necessarily, I think, but more like, what could possibly be going on in this encounter? What is going on? You know, two people coming together. Anisha. So, um, I guess the thing that really struck me as you were talking is about kind of our religion of Zen Buddhism and how in many ways it's for grown-ups, not for kids. Mm. And just this beautiful innocence of a baby, but then this kind of gift as a grown-up of coming to a realization about your own illusion. And, and I guess I was kind of bugged by the fact that this practice is not available to everybody. Like even if a kid came in and screamed and yelled, that just wouldn't be really good for meditation. Or even like a dog came in, like we would take the dog out, you know, the dog, monkey, you know. Um, and so it just, but, but it is available to me that I am able to come in and sit and stare at a wall for 30 minutes and it benefits me, you know, in my uh, whatever is kind of going towards truth. And so I guess um, besides these random thoughts, like as someone who is going out in the world and connecting, so is it like we are practicing for all beings, all beings cannot practice, but we can practice for all of them. Is that what we're doing here? I would say all beings are practicing whether they know it or not. And kids are great because it's like they are in the present, you know. Like they are totally in the present. You, pay, I'm not a parent, but I, <laughs> right? I, I see people nodding. There. So the kids that I was trying to say a few words to in this, you know, talk, a very different kind of talk. It's like they were letting me know where they were in that moment, you know, squirming or really, you know, some of them would like crawl right up to me and like. 
<laughs> they're totally in the now, right? They're right there. And they're, and it's just what's happening. It's just what's happening when a kid, you know, starts screaming during a, you know, a talk like that or crawls around. I know temples where cats come in. There was a cat at Tassahara that would get in through the back door and then had a little bell on her collar. And she would run the whole length of these raised platforms that we were all sitting on. <laughs> and we would all just sit there and try not to laugh. And eventually, somebody would usher her out. You know, there there are dogs in temples. I know one temple that I won't name where the, where the dog is invited in and has a bed. You know, right next to the zendo in the in the outer room. Dog comes in, click 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 click. You know, it's dog. So. No, nothing's excluded. No one's excluded. And this practice, I really want to emphasize this, especially for new people, it's open to everyone. We have a few requests, you know, like try not to get up and walk out of the room during meditation, but if you have to, you have to, you know. I mean, we try, please don't talk during meditation, but sometimes that happens. It's open to, it's available to everyone. It really is. Everyone can practice. And we all make the same effort in our own human way. Everyone feels that and believes that, and please tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry. So I, I think that you said that the whole universe is the Buddha body, and I was wondering about kind. kind I think I kind of just don't understand it. Is one thing, but also like, was that true before? Siddhartha Gautama, human person? Oh, trick question. <laughs> <laughs> or like, would it be true if there was none? Or like, what would it be, you know? Okay, so, understanding what, what is meant when we say the whole, the true human body is the whole universe, or the true human body is Buddha, is another, it's a kind of really radical uh, statement of this, identification, no and, right? Just one thing, one thing. So I don't think I want to say more of like, sit with that, like think about that or sit with it. Just like, what's this mean? What, what is this Buddha body that's me and the whole universe? As far as before Buddha, you know, like depends on how you understand before Buddha. The, the story that we'll hear today is like how there's this bodhisattva who's sitting up in the heavens, and it's, the prediction is that in a certain amount of time, he's going to descend to the earth as the Buddha has had all these lives. And so there's different ways of looking at it, right? The, the kind of cycles of karma and rebirth that you could think of as before Buddha that brought him to the, this ripening, the right time for the Buddha to appear. But everything, clover, us, right, appears at the right time. Where, where does it come from and where does it go? Those are the big questions. You can call it Buddha. We call it's the Buddha of this era, but there are other Buddhas, and there's already the future Buddha is waiting for the next eon. That's the story. That's the narrative we have. So what's the reality that those things are pointing to? It's like asking what's before the Big Bang or what happens after the universe ends. I don't know, <laughs> but it's all one thing somehow. Yes? Um. You use the term Buddha body, and I've heard the term Buddha field before, and I was wondering if those were translations of the same term, or if they were related, or if they are not related. Or if 
or if you don't know? I don't, I won't claim that I'm sure. I'm probably there are two different words, but um, me, a, a Buddha field, we are creating one right now with our practice. Um, it's, it's the realm of practice. And it's always here, but we kind of like, we actualize it when we come together. Um, the Buddha body is maybe is pointing to something a little bit different, but not unrelated. It's a whole other talk, says Mako. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back next week. <laughs> Is what? Kaya the same as Buddhism? Like as in Dharmakaya? Yeah. Is that translation? Kaya. Body. Body. More like body. Yeah, like Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya, Nirmanakaya. Those are. Yeah. So not quite field. There are three bodies of Buddha. And I'm not saying any more about it right now. <laughs> you can look it up. The tree Kaya, three bodies. Question. Um, what does it mean to practice in Buddhism? Say that there's a truck outside. What does it mean to practice in Buddhism? What is practice? Whoa. Um, well, there's formal practice, which we're doing right now. Right. Thank you. Um, so the, the fundamental practice, the fundamental thing that we do is to meditate, to sit sazen, and out of that, everything else really comes. So I would say, Practice can be shorthand for sitting meditation, but it includes a lot of other things, and actually it is our entire life. Right? You're trying to practice with awareness of every moment. Because if we just sit down for half an hour a week or something and get up and go back to sleep, then it's not really very effective. It's not having, it's not benefiting us that much. Although it's also said one moment of zazen, right, encompasses all time, all space, all things. So there's that. <laughs> right? It's never wasted. But it's most, I think, effective if we carry it with us off the cushion right? and achieve some kind of continuity with our experience in our life. So there are lots of ways in which we try to do that. Like one easy one is like carry things with two hands. Each thing with two hands to try to feel connected to what you're doing, not separate from things, not go on autopilot. Mindfulness. This is a this is another talk, or maybe another series of talks. I hope that addresses your question a little bit. Are we having tea and cookies today? Does anybody know? <laughs> Sugar Shock Saturday is what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other questions or comments? No, sure. You were talking about uh, sights and sounds while you're meditating. And I remember one time we were all sitting quietly, and uh, it was outside uh, all this noise and yelling and arguing, and this woman started screaming, Help me, help me. And you know, you're kind of torn like, but our Eno got up and ran out and to 
do whatever, and it turned out there was a film crew. The <laughs> 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 street is so wide that you see film, yeah. you know, it, and it was, it was all made up. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't anything other than a delusion. On the other hand, my, my uh, first teacher was trained at the San Francisco Zen Center in the days in the 70s and 80s when it, it was not a very good neighborhood. And it was a really bad neighborhood. And still, and bad things still happen in that neighborhood sometimes. But they'd be sitting in this, this ground level Zendo where the windows were like right on this alley on one side and there were muggings going on while they were sitting, you know. And I don't know whether the people who were outside, just outside the Zendo, were going to help, but she said it was quite challenging to sit there while the world unfolded outside their safe space. It's a good lesson. Was there another hand up? Yes. Yeah, so you mentioned when you gave this talk to uh, kids um, that, you know, they're kind of like uh, dismissive, like, I'm already awake, I wake up every day, and like, well, what is this idea of being awake? And, you know, you mentioned you draw, you help them draw attention to like their sensations both outside and inside. Um, I, I guess I was curious, was that a convincing argument to the kids of like, oh, there's more to this awake thing than I was aware of? Or if, if they are, if a kid is not convinced by that, Thank you for the question because actually it kind of connects with Manisha's question about kids can't practice. So what was interesting to me about that is there were some older kids who had been coming to these celebrations since they were really little, and they they were like, it's like this, don't you see? You know, and they were like trying to really sit and put their hands in the you know the zazen mudra that we use, and um, you know that that had. They're imitating in some ways adults, you know, and they're all, and they're also being older kids, like younger younger brother, younger sister, you know. I'm not like that anymore. I'm grown up, right? I'm a grown up kid. But it was also, I think, what they had been absorbing by coming a couple of times or three times. They weren't coming to meditation, but they were coming to things that were focused on them, celebrations, parties. You know, we tried to have several sangha events every year and they would and we advertise them so they would bring in people sometimes who just were like Buddhist curious, you know. Um, and they they like, you know, they they respond on some level that isn't the level that an adult on their spiritual journey is necessarily responding, right? You know, like doing things like offering incense or bathing a Buddha or whatever the thing was. And then they get to have cake and run around and these strangely dressed adults. So, so it has it has this impact on everyone, some way or other. So I think that uh, maybe the kids that I was sort of saying, well, you know, I, just settle down and like, are you breathing? Do you know you're breathing? Do you know how do you know you're awake? Is it just because your eyes are open? You know, a couple of them took that in. But some of them just continued to like, where's the cake? <laughs> Yeah, where's the cake? <laughs> well, we could stop and. Where's the cake? <laughs> it's outside, waiting for us. We have a little bit more to do before we go to the cake. All right, well, let's
So it will be after. Thank you all very much.